0: welcome to the hyper guy motivational podcast i'm so happy to have a it's an old friend of mine but it's she's an amazing guest i've wanted her to be on the podcast for a long time she's just so so busy that i I, it's hard for me to get get a hold of you joy so thank you for being here today and i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and give you a little bit of a a chance to introduce yourself as well but i'm gonna give a little bit of uh, information about you so Joy is uh, the big boss of an amazing company called the Joy of Romance. Uh, and Joy, how long has the company been around now? 18 years. 18 years. Oh, my God. Um, she is an international elite matchmaker, and I, I'll have you go into that. Um, she has her BA from Mills College and her MBA from Mills College in Oakland, which is a great private school. Sally, it's been having some issues, and but we can talk about that, too. And she's a relationship mentor. She's got, and, and you can find her on thejoyofromance.com. And she's going to go into more into what she does. But um, I know you've been doing this for a long, long time, Joy. And one of the things, and I'm going to definitely mention this, is that you're a guide for individuals to be their personal best in partnerships. And it goes a little deeper than that. I, I think that's a very simplistic way of saying that, right, Joy? Indeed. But you're like one of the most positive people I've ever met. So I'm really glad to have you on here.
1: <laughs> it's kind of hard not to be when you were born with the name Joy, last name Time, T-I-M-E, as your <laughs> father's name was Justin Time. How about that?
0: Oh, are you serious? Oh, my <laughs> yeah. God. So Let me ask you this. Okay, so I want to go a little bit, uh, first, I always kind of do it the same way. I want to find out a little bit about you, and then we'll go into how the company started and, you know, why it's important to you and so forth. So, um, where were you born and raised, Joy? <laughs>
1: Well, I was born in Minnesota, and I was there until the age of two. Then they took me to Palm Springs from two to seven. And then in the middle of the winter, they had the nerve to take me back to Minnesota. And so as a seven-year-old, going from barefoot and sundresses to seven layers in moon boots and having to walk to school, uh, if I caught my parents both in the living room when I got home, I would point at them and I would say, this is so wrong, and you know it, and I'm moving back to California as soon as I can. (laughs) And then when I was looking at colleges, my mom said, "Um, so where are you thinking of going? And I said, I told you since I was seven, I was going back to California. And she said, well, you can't go to Southern California because you've got crazy cousins down there and I don't want them to influence you. And I said, well, then I better figure out what's in Northern California. But in the meantime, we traveled around so much that by the time I got to seventh grade, I had changed schools 13 times. So I was in Minnesota and Washington state, back in Minnesota, back in Washington state, back in Minnesota. And, um, my father was a minister. So it was a bit more moving than most military families, but we would even move, you know, a different neighborhood and I'd have to go to a different school. So it was a little challenging. I was super shy as a kid, being a preacher's kid and moving that much.
0: Joy. So you've always been super positive since I've known you. Um, just in like all, in all aspects of your life, you're always very, very positive, and very motivated. Were you like that as a teenager as well, growing up? Are your parents that way?
1: My mom is, I think. I, I think my dad is too. Yeah, it was. He's no longer with us. Um, uh, very uh, of service, very uplifting. Um, and um, I'm, I'm lucky again, my dad's name was just in time and he was very uh, exuberant and as a either a minister or he was the um, music director of a church. So yeah, he definitely and, brought that.
0: And then what were your high school years like?
1: Luckily, my mom, when my parents divorced and we went back to Minnesota for that last time, my mom promised me that I would go to the same school from seventh to twelfth grade. So I was at the the same, her alma mater, which was a private um, academy that was covenant-based. And uh, I... I was terrified of public speaking, um, Oh, actually, I'm going to move back. When I was in seventh grade, I think this was one of the most pivotal moments of my life. I was waiting. She was a nurse, and I'd always have to wait for at least an hour after school. So I got permission from one of the English teachers to stay in her room and be able to look down to see when my mom's car arrived, because it was very cold in Minnesota. <laughs> I didn't want to be hanging out outside. And uh, I had just finished talking to the really sweet uh, janitor who had come through. And I said, you know what? I think the shyness thing isn't serving my greater purpose. And I challenged myself to four things at that time uh, to really try to shift that. And I said, you know, Joy, you got you got confidence that you're going to be at the same place. You're going to be able to develop some friendships here. So it's time to get rid of the shyness thing. And so I said, okay, I'm going to I'm going to make sure that um, everybody that I see I'm going to treat as though they're a potential uh, character in an upcoming script or book that I'm going to read. And it's my job to do a character study on them and to really learn about who they are. So I embrace that, whether it be the, you know, the, math geek or the 80-year-old um, retired lawyer at the coffee shop or the the jock. Um, it didn't matter. I was going to really just hone in and figure out who they were and be there with them. And then I was, my mom had a very limited palate and almost everything she cooked was white. She didn't use spices. So my stepdad um, to be at that time uh, had taken walk cooking classes and had a, a better, you know, range of food so i challenged i told him that i would eat anything once which he really had a lot of fun with so scary foods there um i've eaten (laughs) and then um uh, my dad had just had a car accident it was the first time he had like a windfall of cash so he gave me some money and i decided that i was going to take modeling lessons um so i learned how to to do that um how to walk and how to put on makeup. And that was a really wonderful confidence booster. And the only thing of the four that didn't work was um, when I was really little, I thought that I had gotten my mom's jeans. If I was a girl, if they had had a boy, you would have absorbed more of the dad's jeans. I don't know. That was just in my mind, when I was a little. And so my dad being this incredible singer and musician, uh, my mom, her friends would say would you kindly mouth the words we'd all appreciate it a lot more if you didn't actually sing (laughs) so I just thought oh well I guess I got the mom jeans I can't sing and so I decided to uh, get private lessons at the best um, music school in Minnesota McPhail and so I started taking private lessons on my fourth lesson I was dropped off at this woman's house by my stepdad um She's like, You got a serious pitch problem, and I have no idea how to fix it. So I'm not going to take your money anymore. This is done. And like, booted me out of her house. And I was like, sort of falling. <laughs> I walked to like, go try to find a pay phone to call my stepdad to come and take me out. So the other things really worked well. I still wasn't singing until I got to college, I think.
0: <laughs> so then, so um, when you were in high school, Did you, did you decide to, how did you decide to come to the, you kind of gave me an idea why you came to the, to the Bay Area, but why did you choose Mills College? And for people that don't know Mills College, Mills College was a pretty prestigious all women's college in the Bay Area. What, what made you choose Oakland or or Mills College, which is in Oakland? what, What made you choose it?
1: Yeah. So I'm glad that I had touched on the fact that I was terrified of public speaking. So I was, you know, after that declaration in seventh grade, anything that scared me, it pissed me off because it controlled me in some way, shape or form. So this, um, fear of public speaking, I decided to go head on and become the, uh, the captain of the speech team. So I was the captain of the speech team. Uh, one other thing that I was scared of was, um, heights. I was super terrified of heights. And so I decided that I was going to register for the ROTC and become a paratrooper. So um, these two come into play with why I chose Mills. So one day um, I was also the editor-in-chief of the yearbook and the yearbook prior to mine placed first in state. Yes, there's competitions for yearbooks. So I was going to accept the award at the University of Minnesota same day that my whole class was being bused to go to the college fair. And I had to prove to my college counselor that I was going that evening. So I went with my mom. And there was a bunch of super boring, boring speeches going on. And then this woman got up and she was ultra dynamic. Her name was Zina Jacques. And I was like, wow, who are you? And so I went over afterwards and said, I love this, 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 and this. And thank you for, you know, getting everybody to wake up that was being put to sleep by those other people. And I didn't catch what school you're from. And she said Mills College. And I was like, I don't know much about that. Tell me more. And she said, all women. And I said, okay, bye-bye. Got to go. Not interested. <laughs> I like boys. So... um <laughs> I left. And then as we were walking around, I ran into her again. And she's like, "But just fill out one of my blue cards. Just just fill out the card. So you know, we can get to know each other a little bit better. And I can send you some information. And hey, by the way, we won this big, you know, incredible thing. You know, they tried to make us co-ed. And we were proud to be all women. And they had the television up with them on the Donahue show. (laughs) It's funny. And um, I was like, I pretended like I knew what she was talking about, didn't know. And then After that, ROTC had called pretty darn regularly trying to get me to finish up my paperwork to to go into ROTC. Mills college women called me more than the ROTC did. And I was like, whoa, who are these people? And, and so I went out to coffee and brunch and all sorts of things with some really magnificent women. And I'm like, wow, this far from their home base, they've got this big of a representation. And uh, at the end of the day, I wound up getting sick right around the time that we were supposed to be doing all the college applications. And I wound up only applying to Mills, and I got a full ride scholarship.
0: Wow. And what was your major at Mills?
1: I had a double major in communications and business economics, with a minor in psychology and a minor in studio art, which I did in three and a half years while working perpetually, usually an internship and a regular job. I think that's why we get along so much, Martin, because we we don't stop and we try to pack in as much as possible in any given
0: day. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> you got that right. So you went. So you finished up. You finished up Mills, mm-hmm. and then what did you do? What, did you, what was your next step after Mills College? What was the next part of your life? So
1: why I constructed my major like that, and I also had six internships with various magazines while I was in college, um, was because I thought I was going to own and run my own magazine. And the Utney Reader, I don't know if you remember that, was just come out at that time, it was the first subscription-based magazine. And I loved it because it wasn't controlled by its advertisers. So I thought, that's what I want to do. And I it was a historical documentary about the small towns in America written from the people's point of view, or written and photo documentary of the individuals who make a community what a community is. And I was going to shoot them because I love photography in a fisheye lens, black and white in their environment, from the principal to the, the auto mechanic to the baker. And I just loved that infrastructure. And um, by the time I finished my second major, uh, and thesis, which was in economics, I came crying to Roger Sparks saying, oh my gosh, this is such a stupid financial venture. It's <laughs> really, really, on the third year, it's either going to go under or it's going to get bought out by a bigger publication, which is probably going to eradicate that subscription-based model to it. So I just uh, was like, oh shit, I just did all that work. And I wish somebody back then had told me the powerful positivity of failing fast because I thought I was just the biggest failure, that I did put all that time and energy into that, and it didn't work. But didn't realize that it really laid the groundwork for a lot of other things. So after that, when I was in college, uh, one of my major job of income was working for Franklin. At that time, it was called Franklin Quest. Now it's Franklin Covey. And I was the first person, actually, my tenacity got me that too. I went back to Minnesota during the winter of my Freshman, you no, know, my sophomore year. And uh, when you're underage in Minnesota and you're in the middle of the winter with your friends, the thing you're going to do is hang out in the Mall of America. <laughs> so I probably went into the Franklin Quest store there five times, fifth time I'd come in, I would ask these deep probing questions. Mind you, I must have been, I started college when I was 17, so I must have been 18. Maybe at this time looked very young and uh, they all cornered me in the store and they said we know you're from corporate just admit it and i said no i'm just uh, like very interested in potentially working for your store that you're opening in san francisco and they started giggling they said would you like to meet the new manager of that store, and I was like, of course I would, and they said, go sit in the hallway, and uh, they sent out um, Caroline, and Caroline interviewed me, and I was the first person hired for that store, and I'm still friends with her to the state, and I actually just did uh, an event for her nonprofit that she works for in Oakland, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, I remember that. It was about, um, a lot of that was about organizing, right? Yeah. Providing organization in your life, And so after that, when, well, I I guess I want to know, when did you get into the matchmaking? And I guess, and I guess the the business of romance.
1: Well, along the way, I had many different companies. So even when I was in college, um, I was a party photographer. I had been a wedding photographer and party photographer assistant when I was in Minnesota. And then went into that. I used to be I'd walk around in Berkeley and they'd be like photo girl photo girl picture girl and um so that was fun I worked for another company when I did that and then um I when I was uh, from Franklin I went and helped somebody start a company importing and exporting motorcycles um I also did a loyalty oh that was later um but when I when I was working there one of my uh friends that had gone to Cal. Uh, He he grew up primarily in New Zealand, and we had a plan that when his grandparents, who basically raised him, were really awesome people, had their 50th wedding anniversary, that we'd head to New Zealand. So I went back there, and uh, we traveled around for about two weeks in a camper van, visiting his whole family on both islands. And I was a member of the American Institute of Wine and Food at that time, had one of their little credit cards it looked like I was all official and I love good food and good wine and I we would try to stop at a hot springs and a winery every day that we could we're like this is the life and I'd ask people where can I get this um you know and it was 1990 I had just graduated so it was 1996 and 997, 97 maybe the beginning of 97 they said can't find it we're in our like third vintage um we, we're not even a blip on anybody's radar however i knew that cloudy bay uh, new zealand sauvignon blanc was fetching 125 dollars a bottle for a young sauvignon blanc and so um i knew that there was some interest in that and so when i came back it was kind of the interim of one of my businesses and um I kind of, I work and I do my own business and then I would go into somebody else's business to learn something. And so I was just in this kind of the tail end of this marketing business. I was a traffic coordinator and um, office manager of an advertising company. And so and I came back and I had this idea, I'm like, ding, 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 nobody knows about New Zealand wine, but they have this one that's super expensive. They've got screw caps, which are un. know, unusual. And I just tasted some amazing stuff. So I maxed out my credit cards and um, connected with a good friend of mine, uh, who knew somebody who was doing tastings in people's homes and teaching people how to taste wine. And I said, Well, I want to I want to work with you so I can learn more about that. He had a company on Pier 19, not too much older than I was. And he was importing wine from Chile and Argentina. And I said, If I buy, like if I rent a desk in your office, can I piggyback on your license? And he said, sure. And so I went down with his license and I went to 54 wineries in an 18-day period from the top of the North Island to the bottom of the South and back. Only stayed in hotels three times. I just messaged people. The very first night we were there, we stayed with the Minister of Wine in New Zealand. How tenacious do you freaking have to be to spend the first time you go to New Zealand in his chateau? (laughs) It was crazy. And uh, I had a really professional business card on really heavy letterpress and a beautiful infrastructure for how I was presenting myself. I had put into the universe, um, uh, it was probably about a month into this project, that I wanted to find a guy who knew wine, knew law, and wouldn't hit on me. Okay, that's, I was like, and within a week, the best friend of the guy who was hitting on me, who was a lawyer, surfaced and said i'll do that i'll teach you how to taste wine he had gone to ucla and just for fun had gotten his vintner's license so ray Mirakami, still friends with him and i said well if you teach me how to taste wine and help me with the legal stuff i'll take you to new zealand with me he thought he was going to get like some fun kick-ass like party you know vacation oh hell no i i kicked his ass (laughs) all over the place with me so i brought back 90 bottles and i had four wine tastings and then i went to the 15 wineries that had been chosen from these blind tastings that were the best and asked them. 14 of the 15 said yes. Uh, I asked the 16th one and then made it into a portfolio of 15. It was in the dot-com boom. Uh, I didn't realize I was asking for so little money. It wasn't of interest to anybody big. And it was a steady growth business. And so I uh, asked also the I wanted to continue learning about wine. So, Absinthe, the restaurant in San Francisco, was uh, starting their wine shop. And I heard about that through the grapevine. <laughs> and I went and, and applied. And I said, you know, I really don't know a ton about New Zealand wines, I mean, wine other than what I know about New Zealand, but I'm willing to learn and I'll be a hell of a lot cheaper than anybody else. So, they made me the assistant manager and I got to train with a Master Zomier. And so, I almost got that company completely off the ground. Um, and then I got married and, uh, well, got engaged and he and his guru uh, didn't appreciate me being in an unclean business of wine plus the amount that I would be traveling. And a gentleman had just finally surfaced that wanted to invest in the company because his uh, father had retired to New Zealand and he wanted a purpose to be back and forth there. But I realized I would be marrying that guy because of how much he wanted to be hands-on in the company. wasn't really interested in that and uh, my husband-to-be looked a lot more interesting at the time. Thinking he had money and he was going to send me back to get my master's, he said, I'll totally take care of everything. Unfortunately, four months later, I found out that he was almost bankrupt and he had to fire 14 people. And I took over all 14 people's jobs and became the chief operating officer of an entertainment company for which we had two recording studios, two publishing companies, and an artist management group. And I was in perpetual motion for the next 10 years, going from London, New York, Nashville to LA, back and forth and uh, learned a hell of a lot. And I think the biggest lesson I learned in the end, because it's one of the most unintegrous businesses out there possible, and you typically don't get paid uh, the last payment, you get paid in three parts when you do a deal with a music Label or whatnot, so you get the first one. You start the project with the artist. You usually get the middle one, but then when it comes to the last one, <laughs> notoriously all labels will stiff you on it. So I learned how to kill them with kindness, hold your peace, and to get paid.
0: Yeah, I I, I, I recall you telling me stories about um, different famous folks like Steam <laughs> and, and if, so uh, those are some of the few musicians that you were uh you know uh, quite comfortable with being around uh among others um and i know that was a very uh, interesting time in your life
1: indeed um, indeed
0: and then, <laughs> and then so when you finished up working with artists artists such as sting and i think you got to even meet michael jackson at some point or, or yeah. somehow
1: quincy team, jones but it's every we...
0: quincy jones i'm sorry
1: and um stevie wonder i did get uh, very close that we got to go to three of his birthday parties and i also put on sting and trudy's carnegie hall shows the assistant man wow
0: music I, you've had you've done a lot <laughs> and then so at, at when did uh, did you get your master's after you got married
1: so what happened was i was married to somebody in the music business obviously and i had this aha with them one day that oh my gosh we were hitting some bumps in the road but where is the Where's the good stuff? How do we get back to that good stuff? And it was just the beginning of the internet at that time. And it was either religious based ways to try to fix it or therapy. Religious wasn't a good fit for both of us. And the therapy we tried and whatever you're dwelling on accentuates. And so it was getting worse, not better. And I thought that's stupid. We need to not do that. And so he left um, on a big trip, came back and very abruptly, very weirdly ended our marriage. And uh, I won't even get into it, but... um, what I found out about his patterns and relationship later, it really made me want to, to run. But when I had um, been looking online, I thought and came up with the title of Joy of Romance and the URL wasn't purchased. So just for fun, I purchased joy of romance when I was still at the end of this marriage. And then when he came home and ended the marriage very abruptly and asked me to disentangle myself with his uh, life and his world and and to hire my assistant on the way out the door, um, I had no money. It was really weird. I had signed this horrible prenup the day I got married full size that said basically I was an indentured servant and I didn't really realize what I had signed. So that was kind of horrible. Um, but I had this idea. I want to help people learn how to get back to the good stuff or keep the good stuff and never have this horrible thing happen, Of you know, the, the rough spots. And so I love the fact that science was finally catching up with self-help books and it was helping us understand uh, the mechanism of what made a relationship thrive or demise of it. And so I thought, well, everybody talks to women and, you know, relationships. We're talking about it 24-7 since we were kids. But men don't have the same resources, and so it was my intention to reach the men with the science and then help them become more integrated with their heart and their head and their Gotten her sexual chakra and, and to become more emotionally intelligent and to be able to choose wisely. And so I've been working with both people who are single and in relationship, helping them to learn how to be their very best in partnership. And I also stress that there's no one size fits all, but there are 10 core patterns. So I traveled across America to my favorite coaches, authors, therapists, neuroscientists, biologists, social anthropologists, even the guy who created what's called the facial action coding system. And got this whole repertoire and took different components from each of them to create this these individual patterns and we look at these patterns we see which are just core to who you are which one combined with another pattern are the strange oil and water combination so you might be confusing someone and then which ones are the weak links so that you know what they are and you can help somebody see your best and who you want to be in your relationship and then how to choose what say with those two sets of patterns coming together so Approach it a very different way. Sorry.
0: <laughs> well, let me ask you this: um, When you first started, so you got your MBA along the way, mm-hmm. and, and you started, you started your company. And I guess, I guess, you know, I love the title, "The Joy of Romance." And if you want to find out more about this, and we'll go go to this the end, you can check out her website, and she can give she'll give you all her contact information. But how is it different than a how is it different than your traditional like Match.com or some other dating or relationship site
1: yeah thank you for asking that and uh my podcast in the beginning was called intelligent love 411 for men some people in your audience might know what 411 is and some people might not know anymore but it was the number you called to get information back in the day about whatever it was that you're trying to find out about so um i i really um I think from the very beginning, that approach with science um, and making things make sense for men, like if you do this, that equals this, equals that. Um, Some of my very first podcasts had really fun names. I'm going to tell you a couple. So the first one was um, why eating chocolate and laughing will give you stronger erections. Another one was called morning wood, get a handle on it. So i Kind of enticed people with the interesting and uh, in, you know captivating titles, got them in, learned about the science, and then um, what makes me different is that I I wanted people to have a solid base for understanding. I chose wisely. I actually can tell you why, like I chose wisely, um, and. Um, I help people understand through this process of uh, putting everything out there and then coming back as they got to know more and more about these patterns to weight which of these things about who that person is and then who the we is that they wanted to co-create. And I call that their love is statement. And, Each of the characteristics of both of those, I would say on a scale of one to 10, now that you know what you know, how important is this? So we had this weighted list with all the 10s and the 9s in the first column, the 8s and the 7s, usually in the second column. And I go, okay, now you're looking at somebody through this lens, this is your litmus test, and you want to make sure that they fit at least 75% or more of this and that you fit at least 75% or more of their list. And then that remaining 25, go, okay, that's that's where we're working on stuff. Because uh, one of my teachers, Dr. John Gottman, said through his research, he found that 69% of all marital issues stay with a couple through the lifetime of their relationship. 69. Yeah. And I his sample pool is a little bit more middle American and South, but overall, you know that that's a heavy number, whether it's 69 or a little bit less. And I wanted to be the person that helped reduce that number. So I went into the beginning. I'm like, if you choose wisely, because that was also where his science was going back to. John Gottman and his wife, Julie Gottman, started the Gottman Institute, and they're written about in Malcolm Gladwell's Blink and Daniel Goleman's Social Intelligence. And they say um, in there, you saw that the, with 94% accuracy for well over 30 years now, he can talk to a couple that's been married or together for two to four years, um, have a conversation and then tell you whether or not those will be together in 10 years. And I'm like, Ooh, I want to know what that guy knows. So he was looking, um, well, first he revved them up two different things. He said, tell me about your love story. And then he revved them up about something they had challenges with. And then he went back and watched their face. He was one of the first people to, he was the first person to put the facial action coding system in action in conjunction with relationships. So, um, I really wanted to know what he knew and uh, I wanted to be able to help people choose wisely and to make sure that they were putting the infrastructure in uh, from the very, very beginning so that they'd be able to weather the ups and downs and know how to communicate and have disagreements in a proactive way.
0: Hey, Joy, what is like the most common, I I know that you're going to say, I get this all the time, what's the most common, I guess, issue that people in relationships come with you when they're having issues? Like, you know, my relationship's not working out. And what is like the most common, uh, top two or three most common things that you see come up? And what are some tips on how people can deal with those issues?
1: Yeah, I would say the the number one thing that you're not, it's not typical somebody would say this, but from what I've witnessed for the last 18 years is one of the major patterns I'll look at is Dr. Helen Fisher's work. Um, She wrote a book and talked about this and it's a book called Why Him, Why Her? She's our premier social anthropologist on relationships, senior professor at Rutgers University been studying this for a long time. Her prior work, she really thought by witnessing relationships, that we only had a four-year cycle with people, maybe up to seven years, and then we'd start sniffing, in particular women, mid-cycle for the next best thing. And with that belief pattern of witnessing that, she's like, okay, well, I don't believe in the one because I'm not really seeing evidence of it out there. So she had two guys that she dated for most of her life in New York. Right around the time of this really pivotal study of putting people into an fMRI and watching what their brain was doing in love, one of those guys had passed away and she felt like the guy that was left was far less than a half glass full and that she was obviously going to have to start looking again. And she was floored at the fact that people had showed up to her test, um, they, they were. She was doing this um, study with Arthur Aaron from Storybrook University. His team was interviewing them, an oral interview and a written interview to see if they were super in love. And if they ranked super high in love in these two tests, they went to her and she was putting them into the fMRI. People who had been married 10 to 40 years were still lighting up like a Christmas tree, proving that they were madly passionately in love. And she's like, whoa, I didn't expect that to happen. She's like, I want what they have. And I'd also really rather tell the planet what does make relationships tick, even though it's a smaller subset of people. I want to devote my life to that, both personally and professionally. So I'm happy to say that during the pandemic, she actually got married and she looks about 20 years younger. She's very, very excited to be in this relationship. And so she was gifted around that time with the connection with uh, Match.com because eHarmony came out. They had a giant magical test. They took all this financial hit out of Match and its properties. And so Match's um, Sam Yagen, actually, I got the interview when I was seven and a half months pregnant in front of the Commonwealth Club, which was fun. Um, He went to Dr. Fisher and said, hey, we we need a test, obviously. Um, Could you make a science-based one for us? And here's all of our data points from the beginning of our history to figure out what makes people tick in relationship, please. So she's like, wow, this is fascinating. It looks like half the population is attracted to a very similar personality, other half's attracted to the polar opposite. And so when she was looking at that, she saw those four personality types come to the top. And then she could see that each of those personality types had higher receptors for a certain set of love drugs, love chemistry in their mind that they were born with. So with that, I'm going to tell you the, the oil and water combination, and that is the number one precursor that you're going to get divorced. So the first one is um, personality type is called Explore. Explorers run on dopamine and norepinephrine. We love thinking outside the box. We're creative. We're spontaneous. We really don't give a rat's ass what other people think about us. Um, we are always in this growth mindset and perpetually moving up um, in our, what we're doing in the world. And we like to make a difference sound familiar, Martin? (laughs) And then the next one is uh, the builders. So builders, they are running in serotonin. Uh, When they're not falling in love, um, they are uh, using the serotonin to create structure in their world. They love boxes. They love um, the outside in sharing what makes a good blank blank or blank whether it be in family values politics religion or their activities they have uh, boxes and then check boxes inside of those and they also very much appreciate a linear structure to things they love weighing pros and cons and with that mindset they like knowing that people approve of what they're doing, so they very much care what other people think. And so when the explorer is finally thinking about settling down, because they'll have kind of tester relationships, but they won't find their the one until later in life, they are often doing that because they want to procreate and have kids and whatnot. Um, they will look for somebody that looks like they have their act together. Well, the builder definitely has spent this time getting their act together and building their infrastructure in their world. And so when the builder is in a falling in love or rising in love phase, their serotonin is completely suppressed. That's what Dr. Fisher saw was the only love drug that gets super suppressed in the beginning of serotonin. That's our comfort drug instead all of those love drugs that they explore have come up really high in the builder so the builder is doing things spontaneously and all five senses are heightened and they're tingly and they're totally focused on their love and they've got this more energy and they don't care what other people think and they're just going going and going and absorbing this person is as as the best study you know thing that they could have in the back of their mind's note, they're going, yeah, 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 but this is just the beginning. When we get together and we're in relationship, well, we do this, this, and this. And so they have all these boxes that are their structure of what relationship or a good relationship looks like. If the explorer could hear what the builder was saying, they'd be like, oh, hell no, do not put a box on me. I don't box like that. I, I, I eradicate boxes. I don't, I do things spontaneously. I don't care what people think. So the love drugs, um, will come up and they'll see bits and pieces of this when they get together. So when the explorer and the builder get together, the explorer just thinks that the builders like them. The the builder thinks that the explorer is gonna change once they you know get off these high love drugs. And then they artificially bring them up when they do other novel things like, hey, we're gonna move in with each other. Hey, we're thinking about getting married. Hey, we're thinking about having kids. They get to a place where the kids can walk and eat um, on their own. And then they look at one another, and they have the high intensity of wanting to do the right thing for the child. Well, if you have one person that has goggles, like I don't care what people think, and I'm going to be spontaneous, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, you know, the other person going, oh hell no, like we do it linearly, we do it like this. You can see they become each other's arch enemies. So I'd say 95% of the people that get divorced, this would be one of their major. Um, things, as they unfortunately didn't know that one had the goggles of an explorer on and the other had the goggles of the builder. However, 70% of the people that come to find me have this strange oil and water combination in and of themselves, and they've been inadvertently confusing people along the way. So I love to help them understand how to how to navigate the waters the next time they find somebody so they're not confusing someone.
0: So let me ask you this question. I mean, this brings up a million other questions for me. but. Um... You help them navigate that. Obviously, those websites like the match.com, they help people get together. And I I assume what you're telling me is there's a lot of science behind it. So they try to match people that are characteristically would be a good match, I assume, based upon what you're telling me. However, it sounds like to me that the best way to go is to have someone like you, a coach that they can speak with and kind of guide them through it. It's just I know. Profit-wise, a lot of the companies might say, you know what, we just want to match them and then and let's hope, you know, we'll use our science or whatever science it is behind it and hope it works out. What you do is take it the next step, obviously, is you actually interact and just interact with your clients. And I know this is probably going to be a, a kind of a funky question. I'm just going to ask it because it's, it's probably something you get all the time as well. Is So there's this match.coms, there's you out here, people are trying to figure out how to meet people, how to like it's hard enough when you when you're in a relationship with somebody that you seem to get along with to, to navigate life through. Um the question is like these tenders and all these other things, are those really ways to meet people, like these applications? Are they really an effective way to meet people or or, or do they cause harm? I and mean, what is your view?
1: I think um it depends on how you use it. And if you did the work, what I'm doing with my clients is helping them understand themselves, helping them know how to choose wisely and what that looks like, how to lay the infrastructure of those first three to six to nine months, which is what will make the you know, relationship stand the test of time or not. So using the love drugs wisely, as I call it, the love drugs are your sticky sauce. So we want to make sure that you asking the right questions early on. So I I do do a lot more in the beginning. I think that if you have that infrastructure, the cool thing is my my clients, sometimes they'll already have, you know, uh, subscribed to the different sites and they're on and I say, well, use them in conjunction with what I'm doing. And so when they've gotten so crystal clear, I've actually helped them change their brain on how they see and operate in the world and their vibration and how they're approaching people. So they're coming in with a much higher vibration, a much higher bar of what they'll want. They know how to sort Fast because I think a lot of people either sort too fast with the wrong knowledge because they're just leaning into fear and they don't understand something. Whereas I'm saying you're always going to have something off. You need to know how to learn how to proactively deal with conflict from the very beginning. And most people on these sites, I think the detriment there, going back to your question, is the fact that they feel as though they have this shopping cart that they can keep going back and putting people into. And that there's a never ending supply of people who could fit that 75% of them. Over 18 years, I got to tell you that there's very I'm not a scarcity thinking person, but there really are very few people who are going to fit as close to that 75% or more. And if you find one of them, it is worth jumping into that and going, let's give this a month. Okay, let's give this three months. Let's give this six months. And you don't have to go, hey, you're my forever person on date one, two, or three. Oh my gosh, you don't know that. So don't pretend as though I'm going to love you forever. That's BS. You need to go, I I'm gonna go all in without my big toe out the door without a plan B and go, I'm gonna give this my very best and I'm gonna learn how to do this. And then we'll reevaluate in a month, we'll reevaluate in three months, we'll reevaluate in six months. So you're actively working to be your very best and whether or not that person winds up to be the one or not, you're still learning and growing and you're using that relationship as a tool to become your very best in partnership. And when you show up fully without playing games, without doing this dance and this peacock, and like, oh, you have to pull these layers down to really get to know the real me. Like you're doing yourself a disservice. And you're probably going to live in regret and go, oh, shit, that's the one I let go because you're playing games. So there is a dance to do. Yeah. But it's not it doesn't have to be game based. You just need to understand where that person is. And you have to come in so my clients come in knowing a hell of a lot more than anybody else they're dating and so I one I have to usually get them to slow their row especially if I wasn't the one putting the person in front of them and I've already done the due diligence if I put somebody in front of you it's as though you've just jumped into date number eight I've got all the big questions taken care of I've done a great marketing job for both of you I know that uh, I won't put a match together unless I feel that it has a complete you know possible success rate because Unlike other matchmakers, I get paid a big chunk when you guys stay together for three months. And that's also what makes me different. I'm whispering into the ear and learning and helping the person I just made the match uh, on your behalf and you in a both confidential way, making sure that you guys are fully showing up and not just coasting on those love drugs, but having fun seeing each other in different environments asking the big questions, learning, learning what matters most, seeing if you are in alignment and can see a horizon together, and then having some of the buy-in statements um, of what what you'll be able to weather storms if you have those buy-in statements. Like one of them is, um, you know, we're inevitably going to have challenges come up, especially when these love drugs uh, subside and we move from the attraction phase into the attachment phase. And when we do that, uh, we're going to then go to be able to see um, if we come in with the understanding that that's inevitable and we do not we don't want to hurt one another and we don't want to hurt the relationship um, but we want to be able to use that information to learn how to navigate those ropes and to become closer with one another. When something comes up, you can shift your mindset and go, well, this kind of sucks right now, but guess what? I get to learn about me. I get to learn about you and I get to make this we stronger. So
0: that's- what. What is like, I guess, what is the biggest fear men and women have in relationships in terms of when they hit a point where, they don't know they can get through it. What's the biggest fear that you always hear that always comes up to seems to be blocking things that, that, like you said, I know you only get paid when a relationship stays together, which I really think I really admire that about you ever since I've known you've you always, it's what I really like about that approach is that you're, you want them to be successful. You're not just, Hey, you know what, you know, I'm just, just give me, your just give me the money and I don't really care. And, no, you're, you're very, very invested in the actual relationships of the people being successful at it. And I know, and you've told me this before, it's, sometimes it's a hard pill for some of your clients to swallow hearing that they both have done something wrong or one person has done something wrong. Um, what is the biggest fear that you hear from your clients in terms of beginning a relationship or getting through difficulties in relationships?
1: Yeah, so a whole bunch of questions back in there and uh, bringing it back to also some of the other things you had said is that inevitably you're going to have those challenges. And the inevitably, uh, if it's super, super good, at some point uh, between month six and like 18 months, one of you or both of you are going to go, oh shit, I could be with this person forever. And there's like unconscious or subconscious fear around that, or it could be conscious. And then you're going to go, I have to figure out what's wrong with this person. And then I have to go, oh, I can't fix that. Got to go, bye, and split. And so when you know that that's inevitably going to happen, you let the person kind of freak out, and then you come back and you, or if it's you, you know, you come back and go like, guess what, I actually, I can tell you how, We did choose wisely it's based in some really solid stuff not just me having these love drugs coursing through my veins i think whatever that is that hiccup let's figure that out and let's see what we can do to grow closer and to use some of Gottman's it's called like the marriage master techniques of humor and good communication and uh, holding the space and then go back to something that i do with my clients is this really impactful work that i um learned from two psychologists that were helping people reduce their PTSD is being able to go back when you're in undefended state, take a whole timeline of your life, putting titles to things I call your residual yuck feeling around something. It could be a big trauma. It could be a like tiny paper cut trauma. It could be a visceral trauma that you watch somebody else, but it's just stuck and it's not feeling good. And we want to figure out because those are the building blocks of the arguments you're going to have in the future when the two little kids are actually throwing sand in the sandbox at each other. And whatever it is that you're talking about is this up on the surface, but deep down underneath is these little kids with their hurt selves, leaning into fear from somebody else usually putting something upon them in a bad situation. And then it triggered one, if not seven, of their core self-limiting beliefs. And that story is running the show. So I get people to see this early on. And I get them to understand that the trauma work we see nowadays, science-based, that's actually helping us not only see it, but to overcome it. And to get to the other side of that is that people know something's up. They help uh, with the help of some therapist or coach. They get to back to the original source of that. Then they do some inoculation to get it to not sting as much. Then they get the understanding in their mind of what they should do. But your subconscious and unconscious aren't, are off, you know, they're doing their own thing. They're not dealing with your mind when this stuff gets, you get triggered for it. So you need to know from this work, where who do you want to become as your best self what is the higher version of where you want to travel as your best self in, in a relationship as a partner as a human being as this person that's moving forward to to make you know the best world you can with all these beautiful magic memories so you lean into that saying that is my i am and i take them through a grounding exercises and meditation and clearing exercise and then this adding in of this I am and I have them do that in their theta state when they're going into sleep. Now, I really kind of don't care if this works at all in the beginning. That's what I said. Uh, I know it does and it's really magnificent. The very first woman I ever did this work on, a couple that I did it work on, I got to marry this uh, a couple of years ago, which was really exciting. Um, but I have a list when you're completely undefended and you've got your love drugs high of all the stuff because we are take the titles and then with a kinesiologist, uh, muscle testing, we figure out which of those are sticking as a yes, that it's affecting your ability to bring in your most wonderful partner and then co-create the thriving relationship. Usually it's about seven or 10 things that happened in your past. And then we go into a little deeper dive and that's where we come up with these beautiful I am statements. So this list and that list of your partners, if you get it early on, Then I, as your coach, as a neutral party, can see when you inevitably hit bumps in the road um, where those fears are. And it's the things that are going to break you up are coming from the fact that you're leaning into and letting that fear control your world. And it's taking your goggles from looking at the horizon of where you guys want to go together, to look off and you know, you're looking at path A, and they're looking at path Z now, instead of looking down the middle of the road of where you guys want to go together. And I get to help the people see if you keep believing that, that's going to trigger your partner. And if it's one of those ones, you can't just hold the space for the other one, because it's really triggering something in you that's the opposite you're letting whoever put that funky bad feeling in you win and i'm like kill that like don't let that person win anymore this is your time to do the work and once in a while i can be super empathetic if i was in a relationship with you martin and you know you had one of those triggers and i knew oh okay i'm going to watch out i'm not going to hurt that particular trigger but if that trigger and my trigger are like activating one another then we both got to go, hey, we're going to do the self-work and the work together to crush that self-limiting belief and that belief system and that story. I actually have them smash something and then go, this is what we're subscribing to. So when this happens, we need a pattern interrupt. And I try to make them as fun as possible or have the couple make it as fun as possible to go, oh, shit, that's happening again. So I'll tell you one example of that. And then I'm sure you have another question. But one of the couples, actually that one that I married, saying, this is happening, you know, if you've been together long enough, it's happening. And the gentleman could not see it. And it was just like he was such in the muck when it would come up for him. And she saw it clear as day. So I had, uh, we, we brainstormed on this, she downloaded on her phone, um, strike a pose by Madonna. Um, and so as soon as she saw it happening, she would start blasting this and she would start dancing and she would strike a pose. And he'd be like, shit, I'm doing that again. Yeah, you are. And then they'd start giggling. They'd take that talking stick off. They'd put it up on the shelf. They knew they had a conscious couple's talk scheduled that week. They'll take it back down and go, okay, what were the triggers? How did that happen? How can we minimize that? So the way in which I help people learn how to deal with conflict is very proactive, very thoughtful. It does take a lot of talking. But if you do this in the front of the relationship, you will do less of that and you won't break up in the long run. So
0: what 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 advice I love I, I, we can have this conversation for hours I love this um what advice do you give people if you could give one or two pieces of advice for people to keep their relationship going strong um developing and nurturing one another um to keep the relationship going in a positive direction what are the, one or two different suggestions you have that people must do in order to keep that relationship alive. And I think you talked about your friend about, you know, there have been people that have been together 40 years that still have the love drugs and and that passion is still there. What advice do you give people?
1: Well, number one, if you're I'm going to go all the way back to if you're single, please figure out yourself and please figure out how to choose wisely, because if you didn't, nothing's going to work for the long run. So I think that totally terrifies people to come to see me, to even want to know, like, oh, shit, you know, maybe I chose unwisely. But you it'll just if you chose uh, unwise, you've got to see how many of these patterns are off. And then if you understand where they're off and you can actually go to a place of elevated looking at it to go, actually, I can see that as a strength. I don't have that, you know, she has that or I don't want to do this, I do that. And if you can recreate your stories about the patterns, you can stand the test of time together. If they're really funky, challenging ones, then it's always just going to be challenging if you guys stay together and it might be that you want to exit stage left. Um, I, I never tell people to stay just because they should stay. Um, they get to make that decision. But if they do uh, want to stand the test of time together, you have to learn how to proactively deal with conflict together. You have to understand how your two sets of patterns come in to do that. Because another really wonderful nugget is uh, from Gottman, research, he's the chief scientist on relationships, really doing great scientific research behind this. He said a heated discussion is either won or lost in the first 30 seconds. Do you know how many people in America are conflict avoidant? That a conflict avoidant with a conflict avoidant, 100%, 100% you're going to be on the road to potentially getting divorced. You need to learn how to deal with conflict. And a lot of people go from conflict avoidance, and then they swing all the way into volatile. And then they'll throw everything in the kitchen sink at you as soon as you trip over that bump in the rug that they've been sweeping everything under. So you have to learn how to do that. And you have to also have a shared vision of what the future looks like. Who are you as a we? And who can you live into as a we? And what is that litmus test that every time something comes up, you go, would a couple who believes in X, Y, and Z? I just saw uh, my, my high school friends, her son got married, and they They actually made it into this beautiful artwork of their vision statement of who they were and their core principles. And it was just magnificent. Like, if every couple could do that, and then you know who you are and how you're coming in to be a solid pillar in this house of this relationship you're building, and then how your partner is coming in and being a solid pillar. And learning that this, you become greater than the sum of your parts when you come together as a we and you could depend upon the other person and to know what that looks like and keep that love honor and respect in there with that knowing that you guys are creating something that's bigger than yourselves whether you're bringing a family into the world but and then also making sure that you continue to be uh, studying the art of becoming interdependent because it's also very easy for somebody that has a kid and a family to start living a parallel life. And then they divorce after the kids leave because they're like, who the hell are you after the kids are gone? Who are we after the kids are gone? You still have to have the top of this pyramid. Us is just the two of us. Then the us is us as a family and then us with the greater good in our community. And then who are we individually that are holding us together? So look at it like a the house and you're, putting the due diligence in to put the foundation down in the beginning and then laying more layers of that, you know, with your little habits that you're doing and that secret sauce together. And and then my my upcoming vodcast is called Intelligent Love without the 411 for men. So it's intelligent love for everyone. And I'm interviewing couples and I'm helping people see that there is no one size fits all on relationships. And if you can hone into what your patterns are and then see some of these people with their patterns that might be in alignment with yours, then you can glean some of those things and go, oh, I'm going to use that secret sauce that they've got. And I'm going to use that protocol that they use and adopt some of those because across the board, unfortunately, 90 more than 90% of the people that I ask, can you tell me about a couple who shows true love and devotion that you've witnessed that's been a mentor to you? They're gonna tell me, "Uh, maybe one, maybe. Two, very rarely. I mean, that's lame. For 18 years of asking this question to hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of people, we don't have good role models. And even the people who have stayed together you can't tell me that a majority of them are super happy with one another and that they're displaying true love and devotion to one another and what they're saying behind somebody's back or whatnot. I mean, it's, it's just sad. And so my company's overall mission is to help create more loving, thriving, emotionally intelligent relationships, and to have some wonderful people who are doing that and standing the test of time, being able to help be role models for others
0: joy this has been an amazing i can go i could go on for i i'm so interested in hearing this podcast that you have going because this has been an amazing conversation i've learned a lot and i know our listeners have too and how can they get a hold of your services what's the best way to get a hold of you um your contact information your social media uh, contacts.
1: yeah so Um, I also wanted to say that for the last two years, every other Tuesday, I give a live office hours. Sometimes I interview people. Sometimes I just talk on a topic and then open it up for um, question and answer. That's not going to be free forever, but it is right now. If you want to be on my list to be on that, it's called the Intelligent Live Office Hours. uh, You can email me. you can email me at joy at joyofromance.com. Um, You can also check out my website there um, on almost all social media um, joy of romance. Um, so you can just look at that. And then my name, joy Nordenstrom N O R D E N S T R O M. That's my LinkedIn. You can check that out there. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about um, putting this new uh, podcast out. It's going to be, uh, if anybody's familiar with the Huberman lab, uh vodcast is going to be th- like the Huberman Lab for Relationships and Love. Um, so it's going to have tie-ins of as much you know science and as much uh, personal references that I can of things that are really working. And again, I don't try to make people fit together. I want to make sure that you're choosing wisely so that you can make wonderful memories with somebody for the rest of your life.
0: Well, Joy, you know, I've known you for goodness, a a big chunk of my life. And I have to tell you, you've always been such a wonderful and positive person. And I know you've had this company, you've been working on it for a long time. It's been very successful. And anybody out there that wants to get really good relationship advice and coaching and everything else, Joy is an amazing person to contact. And Joy, thank you so much for being here today. And Go one
1: more it. thing. I was going to say, if anybody wants to be potentially in my uh, VIP in my database, I normally offer that as a kind of expensive you know, one off where I give you an hour and a half um, consultation on your top two love patterns. But message me and say that you're a friend of Martin and put intelligent love uh and uh, database in the subject line or intelligent love list if you just want to be on the list in that subject line. And I'll give you a killer deal uh, to be in that. And that's going to open you up not only to me, but I've collected what I call an integrity, secret society of integrity-based matchmakers globally. So this is not just here in America, it's everywhere.
0: Well, Joy, I'm going to just invite you back again. Uh, I hope you don't mind. I'll have to ask you and beg you to be back here again another time you've just been wonderful i'm gonna try to get some uh questions for you to stump you more than i can stump you but thank you so so much for being here everybody join me on my next podcast until until then keep learning again joy you've been such an amazing guest and i'm definitely going to have you back on if that's okay
1: Oh my gosh, Martin, anytime. I love this. I love you. I love what you're doing in the world. And I love the impact you have on the people around you. And your smile is contagious too. So wish more people could see it. You got to start doing this as a videocast, please. (laughs) Oh my God. Well, I
0: I have to tell you, thank you again. And um, everybody, we'll see you next time.